0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine Seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at rcpheritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Um, as Steve says, this work is uh, the work that I'm going to talk to you about uh, this afternoon is part of a larger book project that I'm writing with my um, colleague at the History, uh, Center for the History of Science and Technology and Medicine at Manchester, Neil Pemberton, um, and it's a book about the making of English um, uh, crime scene investigation, CSI. Uh, this this uh, talk is based on the final chapter of the book, uh, it's actually, uh, as in the way of writing monographs, this is the uh, this is the chapter that we started with, so it was it was where we were kind of aiming at throughout the entire kind of the, uh, thinking about the architecture of the of the book and the project overall, and obviously as uh, as one writes towards the end. Uh, the story that you think that you're um, that you're that you're moving to changes. Uh, so this is at once sort of old uh, territory, but also beca- because it's being uh, framed as at the end point of this story that uh, we're telling, um, it's new and fresh. And I hope uh, you enjoy it. So this this book <clears throat> that Steve kindly trailed uh, is. Uh, an investigation of uh, what we call crime scene, or CSI, um, particularly in the English context, and I am um, anxious to make that clear to what I take to be a largely Scottish audience, you'll know uh, that uh, there are many, many differences in uh, north and south of the border, uh, especially when it comes to law and uh, medical legal inquiry. So this is a particularly English story, Um, and the story is organized around a couple of core themes, uh, the first being developments um, and in, in the working practices and uh, conceptualization of forensic pathology. And the second is uh, a sort of an analysis of developments of crime scene investigation. And that is an investigative kind of complex which is driven uh, not so much by forensic medicine but forensic science. Over the course of the century, uh, the 20th century, uh, the book argues the latter model, the forensic science model of trace-oriented and team-driven investigation, made significant inroads into the traditional authoritative status of the forensic pathologist. But we're not trying to tell in this book a, a simple linear story in which a forensics of bodies is ultimately eclipsed by a forensics of things, instead uh, we see this relationship as better characterized and explained and investigated as a dynamic interplay between two sets of practices uh, two sets of personnel and also spaces institutional spaces and otherwise so before getting to the main part of the story i want to very briefly outline what i mean by forensics of bodies and of things both uh, is the first thing to say underwent important changes in the early part of the 20th century. <clears throat> so first to bodies. Of course, uh, the medical legal post-mortem has a very long history, uh, but at least in the English context, it was only in the first decades of the 20th century uh, that the encounter between the body, the dead body, and the pathologist became a high-profile and in a certain sense a personalized practice. <clears throat> Even if you look back uh, to even to the late 19th century, even in the most widely uh, publicized of Victorian homicide investigations like the Ripper murders in the 1880s, victims' bodies were typically examined by faceless investigators, often local practitioners with no particular claims to expertise. <clears throat> now, the landscape of forensic shifted. Uh, with the emergence of what we call elsewhere uh, the celebrity pathologist in the 19-teens and 1920s. And this new beast on the landscape is best represented, again, in the English context by Sir Bernard Spilsbury, um, well, pictured in two different poses um, on the slide. So Spilsbury, in a career spanning four decades, uh, featured in a series of highly publicized cases uh, in which uh, Which basically followed a common pattern faced with gruesome uh, decomposed and mutilated f- flesh, Spilsbury single handedly assembled its story from within the close space of the mortuary and then emerged to defend his findings in the public and often highly contested space of the courtroom, however. Spillsbury's mortuary and courtroom performances met with a fair amount of criticism. Spilsbury acted essentially as a lone figure. His commanding presence lent him an aura of infallibility which for many contemporary critics uh, raised concerns that it was actually his celebrity rather than his science uh, that, uh, that the juries found most persuasive. Following his suicide in 1947, a younger generation of forensic pathologists sought to distance themselves from his legacy, rejecting his insular virtuosity in favor of the ideals of collaboration and multidisciplinary exchange. But even as they did this, the primacy of pathology was itself being challenged by an increasingly technical and specialized forensic approach, one that shifted homicide investigation from its traditional focus on the corpse to a team-driven search for trace evidence. This forensics of things was anchored in what Neil and I uh, believe was a new forensic space that was beginning to be articulated in the early 20th century, and that is the crime scene. Now, the origins of modern crime scene approach, the modern crime scene approach to criminal investigation can be traced um, to two leading figures, to the writings of first the Austrian uh, jurist Hans Gross and the French criminalist Edmund Locard. Gross's Handbook for Criminal Investigation, uh, published in German in 18, uh, 1893 and subsequently translated into English first in 1906, is, the f- is seen as, and rightly seen, I think, as the first systematic practical manual for criminal investigation. Locard, founder of, the, of Europe's first. Police Laboratory in Lyon in uh, 1910, built on Gross's pioneering work, especially by elaborating on the ways that lab techniques could be utilized to make sense of material which was recovered at the crime scene. Now, two features were central to this approach. First, the need to suspend crime scenes in time and space in order to create a matrix in which objects and their physical context could be subjected to systematic investigation undisturbed by degradation and or contamination. This enabled a second feature of, of this forensics of things, and one which is actually more central to my objectives today, and that is the meticulous excavation of the crime scene as a quasi archaeological or ecological site. To some extent this can be described as a shift from uh, the body of the victim uh, to the material traces left by the criminal and from the synoptic position of the pathologist in the mortuary uh, to a set of reconstructive techniques drawn from a range of scientific disciplines and deployed first in the crime scene and then subsequently in the police laboratory. The criminologist in Locard's suggested phrasing, recreates the criminal from the traces he leaves behind just as the archaeologist reconstructs prehistoric beings from its fragments. So by mid-century, mid-20th century, detection and the collection of traces in crime scenes was becoming a fairly standard feature of forensic investigation. And this in turn entailed a set of conceptual and practical shifts. The increasing capacity and complexity of trace analysis, most notably, demanded specialized knowledge and equipment that that far surpassed the the, the bounds of the conventional autopsy. So these new frameworks, both full of promise and also of potential tensions, were tested in response to actual cases, and nowhere more so than in those involving high-profile murders. So I want to turn to one such testing investigation linked to one of the most famous homicide inquiries of the 20th century, the case of John Reginald Halliday Christie. So at the center of the Christie case stood a house, 10 Rillington Place, a dingy Victorian tenement in a nondescript Notting Hill cul-de-sac. The probing of this space by investigators transformed the house into a macabre investigation excavation site in which a forensics of bodies and things were thrown together in a, essentially in a collaborative exercise. Focusing in detail on the discovery, recovery, and analysis of bodies and of traces in this space enables us to see how these two forensic enterprise, forensic enterprises interacted to generate knowledge from their encounters with the material world of Number 10. So briefly on to the story. On the 24th of March 1953, a crowd of spectators gathered in Willington Place, alerted by reports of a body found vacant in a vacant rental flat on the ground floor of Number 10. The flat had stood empty uh, following the departure of its previous tenant, John Christie, who was with his wife Ethel, had lived there for some 15 years. Ethel had not been seen since before Christmas. The alarm had been raised by a resident who, while attempting to fit a shelf in, a kit- in the kitchen, discovered a hollow in the wall covered with wallpaper, which in turn concealed a darkened alcove. Peering in through with the assistance of a torch, he saw a lifeless, bared human back. So that's... Um, that's there in the alcove. An investigation team was called to the scene. The removal of the body from the alcove began a process through which Will- Wellington Place was turned into a layered crime scene. Two further bodies wrapped in cloth and sacking and positioned on top of one another were found stacked behind the first. As the excavation continued, a squad of detectives armed with spades, picks and crowbars began to take the flat apart and in the process made another chilling find a fourth body, shrouded and entombed, uh, lying under the floorboards of the front room, and that's, um, that's here. Over the next several days, Christie's flat underwent a systematic and meticulous search overseen by the London hospital pathologist Francis Camps heir apparent to Spilsbury who was described by a colleague as quote one of the great forensic pathologists of the 20th century and even more significantly as a team man. As the investigation proceeded newspapers ran a constant stream of articles reporting on, the, on largely anonymous investigators entering the property and leaving with boxes of unspecified material. Through this intensely public process 10 Rillington Place was transformed. It was no longer an inanimate structure. It became instead a sentient witness, almost a guilty participant that needed to be questioned. It stood in the mirror's haunting headline as the house of murder. Now, on the Night, uh, 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 at 9.30 on the night of March 27th and working through to the following day, Francis Camps began his post-mortem work at the Kensington Mortuary. He surveyed the external appearances of the bodies, estimated the victim's ages, and noted anti and mo- post-mortem um, marks. In doing so, he paid close attention to the state of the clothes of the bodies from the alcove, which appeared to him to be derang- uh, disarranged, not deranged, That was another talk. Um, He also identified what he described as a whitish soapy substance in and around the victim's genital areas. He then began to open up the bodies for internal inspection, assessing the appearances of the major organs, blood and tissues, and taking samples for further analysis. On the basis of these preliminary inquiries, Camps classed the bodies into two groups. The first, uh, were those of the bodies of, uh, found in the alcove, three young women aged between uh, 20 and 30. These had been found in the alcove, and he had estimated them to have been uh, dead for approximately four to 12 weeks prior to their discovery. Early drafts of his postmortem reports show that Camps provisionally concluded that these young women had been strangled, indicated by marks around the neck, and also had been given a lethal doses of carbon monoxide, suggested by what he called a definite pink coloration to the skin and of the whole body, and confirmed by similar appearances of the blood and tissues. Initially, he considered these cases um, ones of poisoning, as the neck marks to him did not appear to be of sufficient severity to represent a cause of death. Body number four was different, the body under the floorboards. This was of a 50 to 60-year-old woman who he believed had been asphyxiated 12 to 15 weeks previously. Within days, police inquiries had established their identities. Three as local single women in their mid-20s. The fourth, Mrs. Ethel Christie, aged 54. Now, the apparent certainty of Camps' findings in the mortuary uh, were to some extent uh, sorry, illusory. From archival records it's clear that his reports were continuously redrafted as the evidentiary elements of the case from outside the mortuary began to unfold. This underscores an, an important point for me and that is that Camps's autopsies did not operate in isolation. Instead he worked within and drew upon a wider network of scientific and police expertise and locations. The meaning of of Camps' findings thus shifted and shifted in significant ways as the crime scene investigation intensified and other experts and institutions recontextualized the evidence that was being collected. This process was enabled in part by the fact that the corpses in his mortuary were treated not only by the body-centered protocols of forensic pathologies but were, like Rillington Place itself, closely inspected and harvested for trace evidence. Camps collected samples of clothing, hair, blood, stomach contents, and took rectal and genital swabs. These he dispatched to Lewis Nichols, director of Scotland Yard's uh, scientific laboratory, who proceeded to work upon the trace evidence harvested by Camps and those collected earlier at the scene. In some respects, Lab analysis merely served to enhance the traditional authority and practices of the forensic pathologist, at times refining but not contradicting mortuary findings. X-ray images, for example, enabled Kemp to adjust his age estimates of some of the bodies lying before him. On the other hand, gaps did emerge. Toxicological results from the lab on the blood and tissue uh, samples from the three alcove bodies, most notably, indicated non-lethal carbon monoxide levels and this led Camps to reconsider his initial elevation of poisoning over strangling as the cause of their deaths. Now to realign his autopsy findings with those generated by lab analysis, Camps was obliged to re-engage with the original scene of the crime. This was possible because though physically removed from Rillington Place, the bodies in his mortuary had, in a sense, taken Rillington Place with them. Entombment in its alcove had marked them with signs that could only properly be deciphered by further analysis of the House of Murder's distinctive ecology. Now I have only time for three quick examples. Uh, to demonstrate or suggest this synthesis of space, trace, and body. First, the determination of the cause of death. Second, the estimated duration of the body's interment in the alcove. And third, the interpretation of the whitish, soapy material harvested at autopsy. To account for the discrepancy between his preliminary conclusion of carbon monoxide poisoning and subsequent negative toxicological findings, Camps explained how the alcove atmospherics had generated a highly particular and unusual set of surface signs. This is a quote from Camps. In this particular instance, the bodies were kept at an optimal cool temperature in dry surroundings with some air movement, almost perfect conditions for preservation they could not have been in much better condition if they had been refrigerated. In other words, the alcove at number 10 had acted as a surrogate morgue and as all mortuary practitioners knew, pink discoloration was not uncommon for bodies stored under such conditions. To confirm this theory, Camps returned physically himself to Rillington Place with a minimum maximum temperature. This is His notes from this visit, set of visits uh, there. Uh, uh, He returned to take systematic measurements of the alcove over temperature over the course of a week. He found a constant temperature range approximating the conditions of modern cold storage. The pinkish hue on the surface of the bodies then was an environmental artifact one that moreover had prevented him from properly evaluating the severity of the neck markings that he had found on first inspection in the mortuary. The bodies in question, in short, could only make sense in the specific context, the specific space in which they had laid. Camps' interrogation of the alcove also yielded evidence on the length of time that the bodies had lain within it. Because the bodies were so well preserved, Camps, again, had initially found this difficult to pinpoint. Bodies, the bodies, however, had been brought into the mortuary with noticeable surface mold. By taking into account his experimentally established knowledge of the alcove as an ecological space, he was able to draw upon expert, outside expert opinion, uh, f- uh, mostly from the Commonwealth Mycological Institute at Kew. Uh, and he asked this expert uh, to, to, to think about what the expected rate of, uh, of mold growth would be of the particular mold that was growing and how it is that the particular space would affect that rate of growth. And with this information, Camps could re- re-examine the tissue f- slides that he had taken earlier to determine the differential pattern of mold penetration in the flesh of each of the bodies, and that is... Um, that's, that's um, there. This provided him with an alternative and ecologically informed means of determining the duration that these victims had lain in the alcove. Finally, the alcove's distinctive environmental conditions held the key to the whitish soapy material, which in uh, the lab, Nichols had identified as intact semen. That's... Um, that 's this side, this slide. this on the one hand confirmed that the victims had, uh, entombed in the alcove had been sexually assaulted close to their deaths. However, it also raised important questions, according to medical legal knowledge at the time. It was not possible uh, to detect semen in or um, on or in live or dead bodies after a period of about 48 hours. And this was because once semen was released, it, was, it rapidly degenerated through contact with bodily or ambient temperature or was absorbed or drained off the, uh, by the body in which it had been deposited. An answer to the surprising resilience of the alcove sperm lay in the cool and dry atmospherics that again camps had experimentally established. But the fact that it could also be discovered in its intact state from internal swabs samples suggested something more and more disturbing, that the receiving bodies were themselves in a cool or cooling state, indicating that sexual contact had been made um, either immediately prior to or even after death. The murderer at Rillington Place was a sexual psychopath and a potential necrophile. So my purpose in going through these examples is to show how the alcove at number, at number 10 Rillington Place served as an arena for multiple interactions and negotiations between different disciplines that underpinned a distinctively modern approach to CSI. I'll now briefly turn to the ill-kept garden of number 10, which provided another uh, intensely scrutinized site for this meticulous forensic labor. And I'll just um, ask you to look at this um, uh, image uh, as an example of how, how intensely scrutinized this was. So this is the, um, I don't know whether you can actually see this or not, but this is them uh, uh, investigators digging in the garden. This is a set of uh, of press photographers perching on the wall, taking pictures of the uh, the investigators and obviously there's a there 's a second layer of photographer that takes the picture of the photographer that 's taking the picture of the so it 's it's a, it's a multi it 's a multi layered site at many at many different levels it 's a multi um it 's a multi layered spectacle um, okay so in the words of uh, and admiring its assistant, camps here in the garden adopted the role of the commander-in-chief, overseeing a painstaking and meticulous search through what he called the wilderness of rubbish and rubble, which included an astonishing variety of biomatter. Animal bones, fish, mainly cod, chickens, turkeys, rats, c- um, cats, dogs, sheep, cattle, and human bones, many of which were charred and broken into small um, fragments. Christie's garden posed a number of core questions. How many bodies, most importantly, did it contain? How long had they lain there? Were they connected to the homicidal events that had transpired indoors? To begin this process, the garden was recast as a disciplined archaeological site. It was divided into numbered subplots in which investigators were instructed to dig to a uniform depth, so that's um, the that's, uh, sort of the diagram in, in the middle. Uh, artifacts were recovered from each plot and then placed in, a, in separate numbered containers which were sent to a sorting room. There the fragments were sifted and classified, their zone of discovery in the garden recorded uh, by color coding according to the pre-established plan of digging. This sorting and subsequent reconstruction work involved a team of medical, scientific and police personnel who laboriously sifted the material using a combination of low and high-tech equipment. The end result of this process was the reconstruction of two skeletons, both identified as female, one in her early twenties, the other in her mid-thirties at their respective uh, times of death. To answer the question of when these women had died, and thus to discover how they might connect with the more recent deaths at number 10, Camps' team turned to the garden's ecology. Here soil analysis and entomology took their place, but the key findings stemmed from the examination of an ordinary-looking uh, bush, the roots of which had grown through and around a buried fragment of vertebra. So that's, um, that's this here. Based on the root pattern, combined with a knowledge of the growth cycle specific to that plant, a Kew Gardens botanist was able to estimate the number of years that the bone had lain in the ground and thus to place the body chronologically within Christie's ten- uh, tenancy at Rillington Place. So, on the 31st of March, 1953, a week after the discovery of the bodies in the house of murder, Christie was spotted by a constable on the embankment and was taken to the Putney police station. There, over the course of uh, a series of interviews, he he admitted to the involvement of the deaths of all four women that, that, that were discovered in his flat. Initially, Christie portrayed his part in Ethel's death, his wife, as an act of mercy by a caring husband he had assisted in her own suicide. The other murders, uh, he claimed, were committed in self-defense. He was given no choice, he claimed, but to defend himself against aggressively, uh, aggressive and morally questionable women who had taken advantage of his entirely innocent interest in their well-being when he had invited him back to his flat. Christie's capture and confessions, however, did not signal the end of Camps' forensic labors. Quite the contrary, they opened up an entirely new investigative front. This was because in the days, weeks, and months that followed, Christie repeatedly revised key parts of his confessions through which he emerged as at best an unreliable and manipulative witness and at worst a a psychotic fantasist. Faced with a, multiple, with a multiple, multiple and contradictory accounts, investigators turned once again to the material evidence. As a result, an extended and refocused crime scene analysis came to play a key role in sifting and making scientific sense of Christie's serial confessions. This dynamic can be best illustrated by the events that immediately followed his arrest. As detectives retrieved verbal testimony, the forensic team simultaneously transferred Christie himself into an object from which telling trace evidence could be harvested. On arrest, Christie's clothes were taken from him and sent to the lab for analysis, which yielded a set of usable traces and usable signs in the pursuit of the truth of the man and his crimes. Each item of clothing from his shoes to his... um, I'm not sure if his hat was involved, but everything else in between, uh, bore traces of seminal staining. This finding at once turned Christie into a quasi-crime scene and also enabled conclusions that destabilized his initial account of the murders, which had contained no mention whatsoever of any sexual element. By imaginatively linking the stains on Christie's clothing, to the soapy material that had been collected from the Alcove victims, Christie came to embody the sexual psychopath that had been projected and anticipated through prior forensic work. On the 22nd of June, 1953, Christie's trial opened under intensive police, uh, uh, public and media attention. The police were interested as well. The courtroom discussions actually focused um, uh, of of the forensic evidence collected at number 10, Willington Place, um, and the corpses was actually relatively brief and uncontroversial. This painstaking work was largely overshadowed by psychiatric testimony, featuring experts debating the merits of an insanity plea which would have spared Christie from the gallows. But again, the physical investigation did not evaporate with, this sh- with the shift from, uh, in emphasis from the house of Christie to his mind. Indeed, deliberations over Christie's mental state enrolled camps in one further and final re-engagement with Rillington Place. So, in order to follow this thread... <laughs> I have to introduce an element of the case that in the interest of relative clarity I've kept back until now and that is that in the legal political and public mind Christie was not only on trial for the the murders committed in the spring of 1953 but for an earlier crime that in many respects loomed much larger, the murder of Beryl and Geraldine Evans in 1949. That year the bodies of Beryl Evans and her daughter, uh, baby daughter, uh, Geraldine, had been found lying together in the wash house of 10 Rillington Place, where they had been tenants in a flat above Christie's. They had been strangled, and Timothy Evans, fa- uh, husband and father, had been convicted and executed for the crime. The House of Murder's grim past quickly became a prime feature of the newspaper coverage of the 1953 investigation and trial, with many reports reminding re- its readers that Christie had been the star prosecution witness at Evan- Evans' trial. In a statement to police from his prison cell, just weeks before his trial, Christie set the lingering speculation alight by claiming responsibility for having gassed and strangled Beryl Evans in her kitchen. The Christie jury appeared untroubled by this complication and following a four-day trial took little over a half an hour in finding uh, Christie guilty for the murder of his wife Ethel. Yet public and political concern over the over a possibility of a miscarriage of justice in the Evans case grew, leading the Home Secretary to postpone Christie's execution pending the results of a special inquiry. Held in private and lasting barely a week, the Inquiry's stark conclusion that Christie's claims of responsibility for the 1949 murders were not only unreliable but were wholly untrue met with widespread widespread outrage. As he went to the gallows on the 15th of July, Christie had become an unlikely lightning rod for a gathering campaign for the abolition of capital punishment. So it's in this very highly charged atmosphere that Francis Camps published his medical and scientific investigations in the Christie case in September 1953. From start to finish, Camps's text represents an attempt to counter counteract the destabilizing effects of Christie's multiple and contradictory confessions and in particular those relating to Beryl Evans's murder. Throughout Camps presents Christie as a willful manipulator whose main target was a shocked and gullible public. Christie's statements Camps warned in his introductory remarks were both untrue and contradictory and necessitated extreme caution in accepting anything until it, anything that he has said until it can be absolutely and fully corroborated. So that's a quote from the introduction. Now to achieve this corroboration, Camps proposed recourse to his trusted objective touchstone. Again, the material fabric of the house of murder and the centrality of the house in this account and this reinterpretation of the 1949 case in relationship to 1959 is signaled by the choice of frontispiece in what is effectively a quite a dry um, read, a, 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 a sort of a melodramatic um, um, uh, 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 street scene of the house of murder at dusk. Now, there's no better example of the tension between Christie's stories and Camps' science than the book's treatment of uh, Christie's methods of murder, his modus operandi. Here, Camps literally and imaginatively returned to the house of murder, this time to the Evans kitchen where he sought to determine if it was possible in this particular room uh, that it could serve as an efficient gas chamber in the way that Christie had described. Camps took took uh, Christie's account of his gassing of Evans step-by-step, dismissing each element with the observations such as almost certainly not on this date, a highly improbable, if not impossible. Camps based these conclusions on a dense evidentiary network involving a full range of scientific and medical specialisms. Here, again, Reelington Place, as a physical entity, loomed large. The centerpiece of Camps's rebuttal was a detailed analysis of the volume of gas in the room required to create the toxicity level necessary to render his alleged victim unconscious. This included a set of calculations that took into account um, uh, considerations of things like the height of the ceiling, uh, window dimensions, and positioning, wall porosity, ventilation, the specific gravity and pressure flow of the flat's uh, supply of, uh, of gas. These were then translated into graphic and mathematical representations which lent additional solidity to his written conclusion, and that was that in this precise space, Christie would have had to have breathed a concentration of gas that would have rendered him incapable of acting in the way that he claimed to act in his uh, final confession. Rillington Place then itself stood as witness to the ultimate truth of Christie, the murderous fantasist whose claims of responsibility in the Evans murder was no more than a perverse attempt to tarnish the good name and reputation of British justice. So this afternoon I've I've used the Christie case as a way of conceptualizing the practice of homicide investigation in mid-20th century England. I've sought to complicate uh, the picture of a clear-cut shift between two leading forensic uh, paradigms, from a body-centered forensics focused on the lone pathologist in his mortuary to a forensics of things driven by a disciplined approach to crime scene investigation. Analysis of the investigation of the Christie house um, enables a far more nuanced picture Uh, for this murder scene fused physically and imaginatively both modes of forensic inquiry into a collaborative endeavor and in the process provided a spectacular demonstration of the powers of modern CSI. But I've also told you a story about a house the forensic examination of which enabled investigators to reconstruct the complex components of life and death that were scattered across uh, it, it as traces absorbed by its corpses or infused in its very atmosphere. So perhaps it's fitting to end with an account of the afterlife of the house of murder, of the way in which its forensic interrogation buried itself deeply within the popular imagination. For a time, Rillington Place became something of a London celebrity. To supplement the classic tour of the Rippers at Whitechapel, true crime enthusiasts could head westward to the hastily renamed Ruston Close, whose new designation had done little to erase its horrific past. In 1970, its ongoing notoriety was enhanced with the making of a film, uh, uh, in which it took the eponymous starring role, and those of you. Um, who did your homework last night may have watched uh, BBC4's transmission of, um, of of that film. The film was based on Ludovic Kennedy's 1961 book of the same name. Kennedy's crusading denunciation of Evans's execution had kept the Christie case and its location very much squarely in the public eye and had contributed uh, both to the suspension of the death penalty in 1965 and to Evans' posthumous although partial royal pardon the following year. So its cinematic outings pr- uh, proved to be Rillington Place's final performance. Shortly after the film crew dispersed, local officials summoned the wrecking crew. The destruction of the house of murder is, I think, a fitting End to this story that I've told you this evening. It represents a symbolic attempt to bring closure to the Christie case by physically removing every trace of a location and its past that for decades had caused, courted, and channeled such intense political, social, and legal controversy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk slash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.